Well, good morning. It is so good to see each and every one of you to uh, look out and see so many good friends and familiar faces. Um, and a privilege. We've had a full service so far, and now we have the privilege of opening God's Word together. If you'll do that with me, open your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, that you are at work in us by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray, God, that you would effectually apply your Word unto us this morning, God, that we would see your Word and savor your Word and be changed in the affections of our hearts by your Word. Lord, we know that this is a work that we cannot do, but you alone will accomplish. It's a promise to us. So we ask, God, that you would come by your Spirit and do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this message, I really want to build on Pastor Dale's sermon from two Sundays ago, two Sunday evenings ago on sanctification. One of the things that has absolutely gripped me over the last six months or so is the question of how is it that people change, or to say it biblically, how does sanctification happen? How is it, as we read earlier in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, that our besetting sins and the sin in our life is more and more put to death and that we come alive to and are strengthened by the grace of God so that we see Christ as glorious in all that He is? How is it that we practice true holiness? And this is an essential question. It's something that must happen for the believer. We read earlier that it's something without which we cannot see the Lord. You cannot be saved unless you have seen the fruit of sanctification in your life. It must happen for the believer. So it's like a splash of cold water in the face. It's hot out. It's hot in here. It should be like a splash of cold water in the face that wakes us up, it challenges us. We should look into the mirror and say, is this true of me? Am I seeing that my sin is gradually being 
put to death and that I'm, I'm coming alive and saving graces and my affections are evermore being drawn unto Christ. I think for many of us, we experience less of what the confession talks about with our sin and we experience more like an endless cycle with our sin. A cycle of temptation and battling over and over and over again until eventually we get exhausted and we give in. We, we grieve our sin and we even hate ourselves. We make resolutions. I'll never do that again. But it only is a matter of time, sometimes a few hours or a few days or a few weeks until we're back at the beginning of the cycle again with temptation and battling and so on. And we sense the, we sense the insanity of it all. They say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, expecting a different result. And we feel as though we're on repeat with this cycle. And perhaps the most difficult part of living in this cycle is that we sense that despite all of our efforts, we're making little to no progress. There's a, there's a fruitlessness in it. We, we experience like being a, like if we were a car that was stuck in the ditch and was constantly spinning its wheels and all this effort is being put in, but we're going nowhere. It's what Paul talks about in this text when he says, I do not labor in vain. We sense that all of our efforts are in vain. And I think this message is particularly appropriate for Father's Day. I think uh, many fathers in this room feel stuck in this endless cycle with their sin, and they think, I have no idea how I could possibly lead my family when I myself am stuck in this cycle. How in the world could I ever talk to my, my children about sexual sin and pornography or um, other things that I'm dealing with, maybe my anger, when I myself am caught in this cycle? And it brings us to hopelessness. But it's not just for fathers. I think it's for others in the room. Anyone who feels stuck in their own battle with sin. And I think um, God wants to speak a word to you this morning. He wants to speak a message of hope. That contained in this text, there is an off-ramp from the insanity cycle. There's a precious path. A blueprint for how we are to grow in holiness. How we go from being fruitless people to being fruitful people. And I want to unpack this using an illustration. Imagine you're in a beautiful garden and you see uh, an apple tree. A tall, it's tall and it's strong. It has beautiful honey crisp apples. And, and you reach up and you, and you take a bite of the apple and you think to yourself, this apple is delicious. So you have an appreciation for the fruit. But more than that, you say, this has so moved me that I desire to grow the kind of trees that produce this kind of fruit. But then you take it even a step further and you think, I don't just desire this. You know what? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to learn how to grow apple trees that produce this kind of fruit. I'm willing to, to learn or to submit myself to whatever that process might look like. You see, these are three very different things. It's one thing to have an appreciation for godliness. Yeah, godliness is a good thing. It's a good thing. 
It's another thing to have a desire, say, well, that's something that I, I want for myself. And it's quite another thing to not just desire it, but, but you, to be willing to do, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll, I'll submit myself and learn whatever it takes. I'll submit myself to whatever process it takes to grow in godliness. And that for those who are humble and those willing to learn, I think this text has much to teach us about how we are to grow. If you're taking notes, the main point of this message is this. God will produce the ever-increasing fruit of joyful obedience to him through abiding in his word. I'll say it again. God will produce, it's a certain thing, the ever-increasing fruit. It won't be vain, it will be ever-increasing fruit of joyful obedience to him. And the way he'll do it is through abiding in his word. And the way we're going to unpack that main point is we're going to look at the roots, we're going to look at the fruits, and we're going to look at the soil of biblical sanctification. So first, the root of biblical sanctification. You'll notice that in verse 13, how the scripture says we work out our own salvation. Look at it with me. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, so this indicates the cause or the reason, for it is God who works in you. You see, verse 13 is arguing that the cause or the reason why we can work out our own salvation, the reason that we can produce or pursue sanctification is because God is at work in us. The foundation of our sanctification is not our work for God, but his work in us. God is the one who ultimately works out and accomplishes our salvation. And I want to highlight just two characteristics of God's saving work in our life. The first is that his work is powerful. I think one of the things that has struck me over the recent years is how the majority of Reformed Christians think about salvation. I think the majority of us think of salvation primarily as pardon for sin. We think of it as 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we primarily think of it as the double transaction. God takes on our sin and we take on his righteousness in justification. Which of course is true. That's right. But it's not just the grace of God and salvation is not just the pardon from sin, it's the power to overcome sin. Listen to how Ephesians 5, 2, 5 describes it, what we read earlier. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you hear the power for salvation? It says, even when we were dead, that is completely helpless, hopeless, unable to conquer our sin. God did what? He made us alive. The Bible teaches that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives and reigns in you by his spirit. 
So verse 12 and 13 means that the grace of salvation is at work in you, not just to pardon you from every sin, but to continue the power to overcome sin. Salvation is not just the pardoning grace from every sin that you ever did commit, you are committing, or you ever will commit. It is the power that overcomes every sin that we ever did commit, or that we're tempted to commit, or that lies before us. And we notice a few things about this grace, this powerful grace. First, it's active. God's grace is active at work. He is active. He's not indifferent to producing our salvation. He's actively working out the holiness in us. Second, it's effectual. It actually accomplishes something. God's grace actually um, makes something happen. It's motivational. It doesn't nullify our efforts, but it actually empowers them. It encourages us to know that we work not alone, but that we have someone working in us. It's like what someone said to Charles Spurgeon one time. They said, Spurgeon, you do the work of two men. And he said, you forget there are two of us. And if God is at work in us, we have infinite resources. Although we often get tired and exhausted in the battle with sin, God has given us infinite resources. He is the God who never slumbers or sleeps. You see, the beauty of this passage is it strikes at the core of the beauty of the gospel. See, the gospel is that we are completely powerless to overcome sin. Yet Christ, through his death and resurrection, has given us all that we need for pardon from sin. See, I'm conscious here, and there are some here who maybe would say, I'm not a Christian. I've never known the pardoning and powerful grace of Christ. And God is calling you for the first time to turn away from your sin and to turn away from your own attempts to justify yourself and to turn to God's loving kindness and the mercy that he has provided through his death and resurrection. However, the gospel isn't just turning away from self-dependence and justification. There are others who need to turn away from the self-dependence in sanctification and to acknowledge and come before the Lord and acknowledge, Lord, I'm completely powerless in and of myself to change myself. God, I need your strength. Lord, I need your grace to come into my life and to do for me what I cannot do for myself. You see, and what happens when we go from relying on our own strength to God's strength is we exchange our little Dixie cups of strength for the infinite ocean that he provides. And we realize that we could no more drain his strength and grace than a toddler could drain the ocean by walking back and forth at a summer holiday. That's the kind of infinite resources we have. And the question then ultimately becomes, do we believe this? Do we believe that we are powerless and that he alone can save us. And those who have experienced this powerless and have turned to Christ for the power that he alone can provide have found that he is an ocean of grace. However, his work is not just powerful, it's personal. It is not just an abstract power at work in us. 
It's a person. We rightly think of sanctification as being set apart. So we often hear people say that God is holy. He's he's sanctified. He is set apart from us. He's other than us. But that can often give the impression that we're set apart to something. I've been reading um, Sinclair Ferguson's Devoted to God, which is an incredible book. And he points out that we are, in sanctification, we're not set apart to something. We're part, set apart to someone. He says holiness is, so, is not something mechanical or formal or legal or even performance-based. It's personal. In a sense, holiness is a way of describing love. And I think the best illustration is that of marriage. You know, in marriage, you are set apart for a person. Um, and so when you get married, you are set apart and you say, I'm, I'm no longer going to be given over to someone else. I am given wholly to a person. And that's what happens in sanctification. We're not just set apart to a list of rules and commands and demands. No, we're set apart in devotion to a person. And we say, Lord, I I want you to have all of my affection, all of my devotion. I want you to have all of me. So God's work in us, the root of our sanctification, is it's powerful and it's personal. But it also produces fruit. And I want to highlight two. The first is it produces the fruit of distinguishable joy in difficult circumstances. Look at at verse 14 with me and notice that the standard that Paul holds out for believers. He he, he calls them to, rather than grumbling and questioning, they are commanded to rejoice in suffering. You'll know if you know anything about the book of Philippians that this is one of Paul's final letters. He's actually writing this letter from prison and he's on death row. He's about to die. And we can sort of gloss over this statement and miss it and not catch the wonder of it. This is absolutely astonishing. Paul, in the midst of suffering, says not to just rejoice in this passage, but throughout the book of Corinthians, he says it 16 times. In the face of death, he says, rejoice, 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 rejoice. He says says this because of What fuels Paul's joy is his rock-solid confidence in the sovereignty of God. He knows that it's actually in times of difficulty that God is most at work. That difficulties are not a hindrance to growth, but an opportunity to grow. And he knows that sanctification, it takes work. Sin is not passive. It's It's like being in an ocean. You ever been at the ocean sort of lined yourself up with your umbrella and you notice that after about a half an hour, you're just sort of drifting down the beach. Well, that's how it is with sin. We are constantly drifting. It takes work to push against the tide. But we know and we can have confidence that God is at work in us and therefore we have the strength we need. However, it doesn't just create distinguishable joy. It also creates noticeable obedience. See, Paul, like us, he lives in a crooked and perverse culture, one that has not only opposed the gospel, but has actually imprisoned Paul for preaching the gospel. 
We likewise live in a culture that is completely opposed to single-minded obedience to Christ. The soil of our culture is not a rich and fertile soil, but it is a spiritual desert. But what is Paul's command to the believers here? His command is to shine. This command means to bear fruit in such a way that it is evident to the world. See, everyone knows what happens to trees or plants that are planted in the desert. They dry up, they shrivel up, and they die. And so the question then becomes, given our culture, how are we going to survive? How is it that we are not going to dry up, shrivel up, and die? Given the darkness of the culture, how are are our little lamps not going to be snuffed out by the darkness, but even more than that, to shine in the midst of the darkness? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 16. It says the little phrase, holding fast to the word of life. See, the key to thriving in the spiritual desert is we must plant ourselves in abiding communion with God through his word. This is the soil of biblical sanctification. You'll notice that little word, holding fast. It actually means to to remain or to stay planted or to fixate there. It's the same word that's used in Acts 19.22 when it says that Paul, he sends off Erastus and Timothy to Macedonia, but he remains, he holds fast in Ephesus. It's this idea of abiding, remaining, planting yourself. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's something that is present continuous. It's ongoing. And the question becomes, why is it that Paul is concerned that they hold fast? And why is it that he says to hold fast to the word? Well, you notice that he calls it the what? The word of life. It's the word of life. It's a rich soil of spiritual nourishment, that when we plant our roots down into the soil of God's Word through abiding communion with Him, we get all the nutrients and all the strength and all the nourishment that we need to produce fruit. We get all the oil that we need to shine in the midst of the darkness. And so the question that I think lies before us is that that we begin with on our laboring in vain. We begin with a sad reality that in our battle with indwelling sin, we seem to be less like those who are increasingly putting sin to death and more like those caught in the vain, lonely, insane, and endless cycle with our sin. I think the most striking phrase in our passage is Paul's little phrase, I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You see, for Paul, the deciding factor for determining whether you are bearing fruit or laboring in vain is determined by where you are planted, where you are holding. So if you wonder 
you look at yourself and you look in the mirror and you say, Lord, why is there so little fruit? You might ask yourself, well, where am I planted? Where am I holding in the spiritual desert? Is it in the rich soil of God's word and abiding communion with him? Or is it in the desert sands of the world? We must be convinced that if we plant the roots of our hearts in any other soil but the word of God, we will soon dry up, shrivel up, and die. But if we plant the wicks of our lamps in the kerosene of God's word, we will burn brightly in the darkness. And so with that exhortation, I want to conclude with three means for cultivating abiding communion with God in his word. The first is private daily reading and study of the scriptures. I often think of the example of the Christian evangelist George Mueller, who said the first great and primary business to which we ought to attend to every day is to have my soul happy in God in the scriptures. He believed that since the Bible and the Bible alone is the appointed means for spiritual nourishment, the scriptures must be poured over and read consecutively. And it must not just be a mere reading. He describes it as water going through a pipe. But it must be a marinating on God's word and the end goal of which is to make progress in the Christian life. And therefore, if we desire to be fruitful men and women and boys and girls, we have to, we have to plant ourselves in God's word. And I'll just ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing with just having a time set apart every day to read God's word? Do you have a plan for that? And is that something that you're doing regularly? And is it more than just a checkbox? Something that you do because you have to do it. But are you doing it with reference to your own heart, pondering over it and reading it what some have called experientially? Secondly, we must do this corporately. I love how Paul says it in Colossians 3.16. He says that we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and that we should therefore teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. See, God has designed us to be in the body of Christ. It's what I've heard someone call, we're designed to have an ecclesial anthropology. Anthropology meaning us as men and women are designed to be within the ecclesia, within the body of Christ. This is why we gather weekly to hear the word preached and to sing God's praises this is why when we baptize and receive new members, just like we did, we make a commitment before God to one another to, in Christian nurture, to speak the word of God to one another. This is why we have small groups and Bible studies, because we believe that the receiving of God's word doesn't just happen in private. It happens within the body of Christ. We believe that there's a folly to walking alone in the Christian life. I love how John Bunyan illustrates it in his Pilgrim's Progress with the character Ignorance. Ignorance famously says, I, he says, um, 
Oh, let me just read it. He says, I take my pleasure in walking alone even more than in company. See, this is why Bunyan gives the, the character Christian companions. He gives them hopeful and then uh, fruitful. He also gives them mercy. See, Bunyan understood that God works and speaks his word through the body. And I'm just convinced, just lay this before you, that this is an area that I think we can grow together as a church. I think one of the ways that the self-dependence that we discussed earlier displays itself is in our unwillingness to let others know those places that we are in greatest need of the grace of God. I think when it comes to our areas of sin and weakness and brokenness, we are people who tend not so much to reach out but to isolate. We tend to isolate ourselves from other people in the church and to pretend as though we can handle it. Now, this isn't just a product of our individualistic age, but it's something that actually only deepens our self-dependence because it cuts us off from the means by which God intends to minister through us or to us. Remember when we came to Harvest Church, Pastor Dale said, that God has designed that the brokenness of the gospel is that where we would experience the grace of the gospel. It's in the brokenness of our lives. The cracks of our own sin, weakness, and failure is where the grace of God seeps in. And I'm sure that many of you have prayed alone in private or maybe reading your Bible, and you prayed, Oh Lord, deliver me, help me with a particular sin, not realizing that God intends to answer that prayer, not in private, but through the body of Christ. I think one of the reasons that he does this is because it humbles us, but it does more than that. It knits us together in fellowship. It allows us to minister to one another and that what we've walked out, we have, and what we have we give away to others. It's the ministry of the body. In the men's group that I have the privilege of leading, the James Fellowship, these core convictions really inform everything we do. We're just convinced that we must grow together in dependence on God by humbly acknowledging those places that we are experiencing sin, weakness, and failure. And it's not just pornography and sexual sin, which is what often brings folks into the James Fellowship, but it's those deeper issues. It's the pride and the entitlement and the autonomy and the impatience and the anger that ultimately drives the behavior. And when we gather together, we gather to hear the word of God and to exhort one another away from self-dependence and we point one another to Christ so that all that we have, all the strength that we have is found not in ourselves, but we encourage one another to look to him for the strength that we need. And I just have to tell you, this has not only been wonderfully humbling, but it has knit together a fellowship of men who know one another and love one another deeply. And we've seen tremendous growth. I couldn't tell you some of the things we've seen and the way that God has worked when we have become dependent not on ourselves, but on his grace. And I know, 
I'm convinced there are other men and women here who've been praying, oh Lord, please God, deliver me from this sin. And it doesn't have to be an addiction like pornography or drugs or alcohol. It could be besetting anxiety or depression. It could be feeling hamstrung by past physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. It could be a particularly difficult financial situation. It could be something that you're experiencing at work or just loneliness as a young mom. Or it could just be a sense that I'm making little progress in the Christian life and that life in God is not what I want. It doesn't really matter, to be honest with you. We are all in need of intentional, word-centered, God-dependent spiritual growth. It's for everyone. And I've been praying both throughout and during this sermon, that there would be some who sense God's Spirit moving this morning, that they would have the courage not just to reach out to someone in the church, and that's a good first step, but to do something radically courageous, like join a small group, something radically courageous, like to let other people in on what they're dealing with. That's something you sense, even the smallest tug of God's spirit. I would love to chat with you afterwards. I'll be in the foyer. Uh, you can just come up and tell me that you uh, kind of like that thing I was talking about in the sermon this morning. Finally, must be something continual. I love how Jesus described it in John 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. See, Jesus' analogy of the vine and the branches is meant to communicate that our dependence on God is absolute and it's continual. It's not something that we ever graduate from. Our dependence is lifelong. And although we don't always have a Bible in front of us, or a friend to speak the word of God to us. For those who, who are united to Christ, they have something better. Or should I say they have someone better. We have the living word of God living in us by his spirit. This is why at the end of his ministry, Jesus said, it's better that I go away, that I might send the helper who will come and strengthen you in all things. And the greatest encouragement I can leave you with this morning is that because God has given you His Holy Spirit, you have more than just mere Bible reading, scripture memory, scripture memory or Christian fellowship. Although, God, those are the means through which God works. The very Word of God lives in you. Therefore, the reason that we can remain in Christ is because Christ lives in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know uh, it's late in the service, God, and uh, that, Lord, it's been a full time together, Lord. We pray, God, that you would be working by your Spirit to produce the fruit that we so desperately desire. God, that you would bring conviction and boldness 
to my brothers and sisters in the room, that they might have the courage to finally confront their sin head on. And God, that you would provide all the strength and all the grace they need in your word and through the body of Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.